You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get to this week's episode, which actually features the brother of a previous guest on the show. Pretty cool, right? A couple of reminders here. Please hit the Apple Podcast ratings and reviews. We want to get to at least 1,000 reviews and crack the Apple Podcast top 100. And because it's the holidays and you want to do a gift for us, well, this is the easiest gift you can give us. If everyone who listened to this podcast went to Apple Podcasts and left a rating and or a review, it doesn't have to be a long one, could just be a couple of sentences, you don't even have to write anything. You could even just leave a star rating and we'd be well on our way to like a million reviews. That's how many people have listened to this show in total and on a weekly basis. We have thousands of listeners, so you can help us out just by leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts that will grow this show immensely. By the way, keep the YouTube subscriptions coming. We've surpassed 2,000. On our way to 3,000, keep it up. Don't forget to follow us as well on all the other social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard at Hazard Ground Podcast. Speaking of gifts, if you're looking for gifts for the holidays, check out our book and film list on our website. Go to hazardground.com. Click on the list tab at the top of the homepage. There you'll find all the books written by past Hazard Ground guests, as well as movies, some of them written, directed, or produced, as well as the movies that have inspired us throughout our military careers, gotten us through lengthy deployments, or even inspired us to join the military. So again, our website, hazardground.com. Also, our Amazon promotion there. If you're going to do your holiday shopping on Amazon, go to hazardground.com first. Click on the Amazon button, and you can help veterans all throughout the country just by going to hazardground.com first, then going to Amazon to do your shopping because we get a percentage of what you spend, and then we donate a portion of that percentage back to the great charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. So again, Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and our website, hazardground.com. Hope everybody is well, hope everybody is safe, and having a great holiday season. Now on to this week's episode. Joining us this week is a retired U.S. Army Master Sergeant who had 21 years in the Army, including 15 in the Special Operations Community and Delta Force. He has 12 total deployments, only one to Afghanistan and 11 to Iraq over the course of his career. He has co-founded three different organizations that he is a part of, including companies called Elder Heart, Mission 22, and Warrior's Heart. He is a big advocate of helping PTSD, TBI, and suicide awareness. And coincidentally, his brother was also on the podcast last year. He is Tom Spooner joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Tom, welcome, and thank you for being here. Man, Mark, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to it also. Uh, this is the first set of brothers we've had on the <laughs> podcast. So uh, your brother, Scott, was an earlier guest, and uh, uh, he is a, he's a good storyteller, man. So you got, you got so, so a high bar to clear, so to speak. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to be able to clear that one. He can, he's, he's a good speaker. He's really good storytelling. <laughs> and it is kind of weird. I mean, you know, usually guys who are in the special ops community and, and who have as many deployments as you do, it's sort of spread out, but you're really lopsided with 11 in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. Like, do you look back and go, I kind of wish I had had more time in Afghanistan? Um, I don't know, man. Uh, I think the answer is yeah. Just to, just if it would have been a little bit more leveled out. But it was just a task organization thing, you know, where they carved us over to, uh, to Iraq. Um, so I just did my, my one deployment in 2002 uh, in Afghanistan, and then the rest were in Iraq. So, yeah, I mean... I really liked all the work that we did in Iraq, though. It was it was super cool to be able to, you know, take it from 2003 
you know, all the way to my last one, you know, in 2009. So it was super cool to see the whole process, you know, from the invasion, I uh, wasn't in the initial invasion, but, you know, a couple months after, but from invasion all the way to an election, you know, was pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, it was so on to that piece, I'm grateful about it, but I, I would have liked to have had a little bit more time in Afghanistan. Well, you and I uh, may have crossed paths in Iraq in 05 and 06, uh, whether we knew it or not. I, I bet was, we did. I was part of Siege of at the time as well. So uh, we probably uh, right. have some names and people that we may uh, know of that are the same. But before we get to that, let's go back to the very beginning <laughs> about how and why okay. you got in the Army. Yeah, man. So how and why I got in the army. So uh, my grandfather uh, was a World War II vet, um, mm-hmm. and my uncle, uh, who was an idol of mine, uh, he was a three-tour of Vietnam vet. And so, you know, I was one of those kids running around ten years old with, you know, uh, my uncle's T-shirt, U.S. Paratrooper, Death from Above. You know, running. You know, so, and I was so I, I've always wanted to just join the military. Um, Always had the Soldier Fortune magazines. I mean, the guns. Every. I mean, just military, military. That's that's all I've ever uh, wanted to do uh, was join the military. Now you went straight out of high school and enlisted. I did not. Um, so my uncle and my grandfather were both enlisted guys. So uh, they told me that hey, you know, they knew I was going to join the military, but they're like, hey, if you're going to join the army, you need you need to be an officer. Uh, and you know, I did what they told me to do. Unfortunately, I couldn't pull it off. Uh, so, uh, I was, uh, so I went to, um, uh, went to ROTC at Florida state, did some junior college time, then ROTC at Florida state. I actually went to airborne school as a cadet. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So, but then, um, I didn't do so well in school. Uh, I, I tended to have a more of a good time that I did work time. I will just say my work ethic wasn't in place yet. <laughs> and so, and so I, um, uh, kind of, kind of was tanking, not kind of was tanking it there at school. And, and I never really wanted to do it to begin with. And, uh, so I enlisted in, in 1990. And, uh, uh, so that was, that was that was how I kicked it all off. Now, did did your uncle or anybody in your family tell you, "Hey, man, you're blowing it! Like this is a great opportunity. Why don't you take this more seriously?" Oh yeah, of course they did. You know, and uh, but I was uh, I was a bit uh, I was a bit hard to handle in my youth. Uh, I was a little bit of a hellraiser, one might say, but uh, well, or a lot of a hellraiser. And um, I just knew I couldn't pull it off, man. I mean, I knew I, I was disappointing them and let them down, and that kind of that kind of hurt me a bit, but I mean, I, the writing was on the wall that, you know, that that's not something that I was going to be able to pull off, uh, where I was at that time. Uh, yeah. Now, so, so <laughs> you make this transition from ROTC, which, you know, a lot of the enlisted folks who never went through it will, will chuckle at, right? Because it's, right. it's ROTC, <laughs> like basic training is harder than ROTC. And I am a product of ROTC, so I can say that out loud. Nobody should be able to be offended right. about it. Uh, that right. said, you, you know, when you make that transition, you get to basic, are you starting to think, uh, maybe I should have stayed in school and did a little bit better with my grades? Not for a second. Really? Man. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, um, as soon as I hit basic training, man, I, uh, I knew I was home. I mean, I knew, I for the first time in my life, like I fit in, you know what I mean? I was exactly where I wanted to do. 
uh, I was already, and, I, and again, a lot of that had to do as I was 20 years old when I came in. So I had a little bit of life experience, you know, under my belt versus the guy just coming out of, of high school. So I had that little bit of a, uh, I mean, we're talking basic training, right? So it was mm -hmm. like, I had a little bit of a leadership quality to me. I had a little bit of taking charge and I was super, super motivated. So, uh, and I want to get, I wanted to get promoted to E2 before I got out of basic. So the only way to do that was to do well, you know? So you already had your airborne wings, right? And right. did you know That's you wanted to be an infantryman? Is that what you were trying to do as ROTC? Were you, were you say what? you were going infantry the whole way? Yeah, man. The, the only thing that I've ever wanted to do, and this is funny because it was the one thing that I never did was all I ever wanted to do was be in Ranger Battalion. That was it. That was my whole mission in life was to be a ranger. Uh, so the recruiter got really good. Um, so whenever I joined the first time, it was uh, joined a two-year contract, 11 X-ray, uh, unassigned. Um, so went to basic training, crushed basic training, did really good. Then it came time for AIT, and they told me, they said, hey, you're going to be an 11 hotel. Like what the hell is that? It was an that? eleven hotel, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like got it, and I was like, "No, I'm, I'm going to be eleven Bravo, and I'm going to go. I've already been to airborne school, so I'm going to go right to RIP, what they call RASP now. Yep. And uh, and I'm going to Range Regiment. And they're like, "No, you're eleven hotel." And it's like, okay, that's anti-tank guy. And I'm like, "What do they have those in Range Battalion?" And they're like, nope. And so <laughs> there ended my first chance. You know what I mean of going there. So. uh so I went uh, basic AIT, and a funny story was is that uh, I didn't put my airborne my airborne wings on my uniform until uh, graduation day of basic training, and because uh, I didn't want to get all that heat, you know what I mean, and all those questions. So I actually pulled it off, which was a big win in my mind. Got totally smoked, you know, on the day of graduating, you know, basic and AIT because, you know. They didn't know I was airborne qualified, but that was their fault. They didn't. They should have looked at the records, you know, mm -hmm. in my book. So do you feel, did you feel like your dream was getting crushed? If all you wanted to do was be a ranger and they told you that's not going to happen, or did, were you at the point where you're like, okay, somewhere down the line it'll happen for me? Or did you think it was never going to happen at that point? Well, at that point I was, uh, I was uh, like the block had been checked that I was, I was in the army. I was in the infantry. Uh, and I was going to the 82nd and, uh, and I was super stoked about that. Um, because while I was in basic training is when the Gulf war kicked off. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I went in that summer, you know, and, you know, it was 1990, you know I mean? There wasn't nothing going on, uh, you know, as far as big, big stuff, not taken away from Panama or Grenada, but you know, there hadn't sure. been any big stuff going on. And, um, so, you know, I was just coming in and nah, no war is ever going to happen. Not that I wasn't thinking that, but everybody was. And, uh, you know, and then the golf kicked off that summer. So all that I was excited about was that, hey, I was going to get to my unit and then immediately, you know, go to Saudi Arabia, which is that's that's what I did. I left Fort Benning, uh, you know, like any good story, you know, before you go to war, there's one thing you have to do, you know, and that's get married. Right. I mean, right. So because you got to get married because you go to war and you die and then, you know, the widow is crying. You know, what I mean, I mean, I was a young naive, you know, what I mean, I was like, hey, man, I'm following the textbook. And uh, so got married when I was 20 years old, uh, 
before I went up to the 82nd. I got to the 82nd and, you know, within two weeks, uh, that was probably about three weeks of getting there. Then uh, next thing you know, I was shipped over to Saudi Arabia to link up with my unit there, which was first of the 504th Parachute Infantry Regiment. All right. That's so, my alma mater. I mean, you're living the life right now. This is all you ever wanted to do. You get there. I mean, it, what's it like? Yeah, man. It was, uh, It. I mean, again, back to being a naive, young, innocent, like, hey, you know, red, white, and blue, loving, living the dream guy. You know, I mean, I got to my squad. Uh, you know, a lot of the guys that I was with uh, had jumped into Panama. Uh, so, you know, they had combat experience. Uh, my platoon sergeant, you know, was a Vietnam veteran. So, I mean, I was immediately with a group of uh, of grown-ass men, you know what I mean, who knew how to soldier. And, uh, and, I, and again, I, I, was, I was in heaven, man. I mean, it sucked, you know, but, I mean, I was right where I wanted to be. All right, so how does Desert Storm end for you? I mean, do you actually get to see so, combat? Because a lot of guys didn't. No, we didn't. Uh, the only, I mean, I got to run into a few bad guys. Uh, we had a, uh, we had some, we had some near misses with a couple of things, and we got to clear a bunch of bunkers that still had folks in them. Um, so I got uh, nothing, of course, what happened after compared to what happened, you know, after nine sure, eleven. Yeah. But at that time, being a guy just off the, you know, a civilian off the streets, you know, and now in, in combat in Iraq. You know, it was a it was a very big deal, and um, and it made a, a huge huge impact on me. And like I said, we didn't get into any really big firefights or anything, but we experienced a lot of, you know, all of you know, for me, like a lot of the the devastation of war, um, and and all those different aspects that I'd never been exposed to. So it really set the tone for me. Uh, on the importance of training, on the importance of doing the right thing. You know, and and being a really uh, a good soldier. You know. Mm -hmm. So when do you get to Ranger School? So I got back from. <laughs> so I got back from. It was. Uh, I think it was April May, of ninety one. Because you know, once it kicked off in January, it was soon there over. Yeah. We stayed a little bit later. Came back. As soon as I got back, uh, I was, of course, how do I get to ranger school? I didn't even have a year in the Army. Uh, but I got my PFC. I got my CIB, my PFC. And uh, and I was like, hey, I wanted to go to ranger school. Well, at the time, in the 82nd, uh, you know, you had to be a spec four to go to ranger school. The only guys that could go to ranger school as a PFC were guys from the ranger regiment. So uh, I went to, they were running battalion uh, pre-ranger PT, you know, and, uh, and my platoon sergeant, um, you know, I had told him that I wanted to go do that. Uh, I said, but I'm only a PSC. And he was like, well, I don't care, go do it. And, um, so I went and, and did it and I ended up getting a pre-ranger slot there in the 82nd. Uh, I go through pre-ranger, uh, uh, success, you know, successfully complete pre-ranger come back and now it's time to cut me orders. And, um, and then the battalion finds out like, Hey, this guy's a PFC. Like we can't send him, you know, and they, so they brought my platoon sergeant and me into on the carpet, you know, and we were getting, 
you know, of course, I, I thought they were going to kill me. You know what I mean? I thought <laughs> I was just going to die as a young PFC with a year in the Army, you know, a little bit less than a year. And uh, and then next thing you know, it was a whole setup because my Vietnam vet platoon sergeant had gamed it the whole way. You know, they were saying the division's going to lose a slot. It's all your fault. You know, and what are we going to do and everything? And then my platoon sergeant looks at him and says, well, why don't you just promote him and send him to ranger school? And so... Next thing you know, I got promoted to spec four and got sent off to ranger school. So, uh, that's pretty awesome. So he was, he, yeah, it was super awesome. But I mean, that has been, uh, the story of my military career was just having these great, uh, human beings around the great soldiers, great NCOs, uh, great officers also. But I always have, for the most part, um, you know, I had, I had senior NCOs looking after me. And uh, because I was doing all the right things, I was working hard. I was motivated. I was I was just soldiering, you know. And um, so I went to ranger school. I uh, failed uh, my patrols in the mountains, so I got to do the mountains twice. And then, uh, but I graduated ranger school, came back, and at that time, in 1992, in the 82nd, the only people with ranger tabs were guys that had come from regiment or officers, usually. Right. Um, you know, that had gone, gone through during ROTC. And um, so here I was in spec four in the 82nd with a ranger tab. I mean, I was like the dadgum golden boy. So next thing you know, it was PLDC, then it was promotion, and then it was jump master, and then it was pathfinder, and then it was air assault. It was, you know, everything that I could possibly do. I absolutely loved I was in 82nd from 90 to 95, and uh, I have some, some, to date, some of the best NCOs that I've ever worked in with in my whole career, meaning like just leaders of men, um, you know, were some of those platoon sergeants, you know, during those times. And, you know, and some of those guys, I mean, they were they were 18-year E6s, you know. Wow. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, they were on paper, they didn't look, they, they looked like, you know, they were failures, but well, that would be the, the standard world. today. Like honestly, like today, you look at that that kind of individual as a failure. But you and I both remember an army where making E seven was probably the hardest thing you can do on the enlisted side. Like that was the rank Absolutely. that you that was the biggest hurdle you needed to clear. Yeah, man. And so it was. I had those kind of men always. I mean, even my battalion sergeant major was uh, sergeant major Hobart, which you know he's in the book Charlie Rangers. And like, so I always had these, these, these soldiers, these NCOs that had been in combat. Uh, that's who was training me, you know, and my platoon sergeant told me, uh, something that, uh, really shaped me, uh, of course as young and it shapes me still today as, uh, I got out of PLDC. So here I am spec four, or I'm a corporal now. Right. And, um, and I got out of PLDC and I got a ranger tab and, you know, I'm just all that. And, uh, my two sergeant asked me, he's like, Hey, what's, what's, what's the duties of NCO? You know, and it's like, yeah, mission first and health and welfare of the troops. You know, he's like, yeah, okay, that's great. He's like, I know you got the mission down. It's like, oh, uh, well, what does health and welfare of the troops mean? And, uh, it's like, you know, I just got out of PLDC. It's like, okay, I know how many kids they have. I know, they have any doctor appointments. I know, uh, you know, what troubles they're having going on. I know uh, where they're at. And he's like, no, jackass, it doesn't have anything to do with that. And uh, I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> and uh, so it was like, okay, well, well, what does it mean? What does health and welfare of the troops means? 
And he said, it means that you give them the ability to survive and thrive in combat. That's what that means. Well, that's a whole different ball game than beans and bullets and, and you know, all that other stuff. And, yeah. um, and man, whenever he sunk that into me, you know what I mean? Of that, that's what it meant to be a good NCO, you know, I mean, was to prepare these men that are underneath me, you know, not only to survive combat, but to thrive in it, you know, and to be successful, you know, that changed my whole mindset that changed everything, how I conducted business as an NCO from that moment uh, forward, even till today. You know, it's funny you know, when you bring that up and I'm sorry to cut you off here. Uh, real quick, no, go ahead. It's man. interesting because when you said the same thing and you started describing the same thing, I remember being a lieutenant, right? Like when I was a second lieutenant and you get your platoon, of course, you know, I'm the same age you were at the time. I'm 21 years old and you talk about the health and welfare and morale. Uh, and it's all those things, right? They have a leader book, you know, write down their birthdays and send cards to their family and, mm-hmm. you know, show them how much you really care about them. And, and, you know, you'll earn the respect and everything in your troops. And, and I was waiting with kind of bated breath to see where you were taking the whole thing. And, and it's a hundred percent correct. But it, back then it wasn't a mindset that we had, to make sure the people we were in charge of had the skills to survive in combat. It's that way now, but right. I, you know, my active duty time prior to nine 11, you know, health and welfare was what you thought it was. At least that's what I remember exactly. it being, you know? And, and I, the yeah. idea, if somebody would have said to me back then prior to nine 11, if they said, Hey, Lieutenant, you know, health and welfare is, is teaching you guys to survive in combat. I'd look at him sideways and go, dude, we're not going to war anywhere. What the hell are you talking about? Like what, <laughs> yeah, what, what right. combat are you referring to? Like, so yeah, I, I just, ARTC? yeah, I mean, I, I just, again, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I, I just felt like, you know, there was something there that struck a chord with me because yeah. I thought the same way you did, you know, like I, I, that would, that's how I would have answered the same thing as, as a second Lieutenant or a first Lieutenant in charge of a platoon. Yeah, man. And that was, again, I just, uh, I, that's why I always talk about the men that have been in my life, you know, without them, I don't know how I would have been. I mean, I would have been okay. You know what I mean? But I had these these men that had had been in combat. You know what I mean? They hadn't lost people. You know what I mean? They had right. whatever mistakes they had made, they had worked through. And, you know, and here they were, you know, just passing along. They were being old warriors. You know what I mean? They didn't die. So their job was to prepare the next generation. You know, and I was just, there were so many guys at that time, you know, soldiers at that time that, that didn't have the benefit that I did of had these combat veterans around me, you know, even whenever I was in the 82nd and the early nineties, you know, it was, it was kind of unheard of. And then, I mean, if you look at the guys that were, uh, damn it, I'm not going to remember his name now, but uh, uh, he was the first CENTCOM commander in Abizade. So General Abizade, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So my brigade commander when I was in the 82nd was General Abizade. One of his battalion commanders for 2nd Battalion was General McChrystal. Oh, I mean, God. Colonel McChrystal at the time. And um, so, I, I mean, I was just, again, I, you know, some people have horror stories with coming in the military and the guys that they were with. You know, and everybody has folks that they would rather not be around and stuff. But, I mean, overall, my whole time, in the, and, and as we go through my timeline, you'll see that everywhere I showed up, I had combat veterans waiting there to show me the way, like to teach me what was right. Uh, not what I thought was right, but like, this is what you need to do, boy. You know, mm-hmm. it was, I finished up there with 82nd. And like I said, I wasn't, every unit that I left, 
I loved the unit that I was in. It wasn't like, uh, this place sucks. I'm going to go to the next one. For me, it was always about, uh, man, can I make it at the next level? You know, uh, do I, do I have what it takes? You know, uh, you know, that was always the challenge. And I always was just uh, wanting to learn more, 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 you know, more about the military. What can I do? You know, there was never an opportunity that I ever missed, uh, and so the next thing for me was to, and, and I had, of course, I was running my own little game, right? So I, I'd been five years, almost five years there in the 82nd, and I knew my time was up. I was either going to get tagged for drill sergeant or recruiter. And um, so I was like, well, let me go ahead and drop my packet, go special forces selection. And uh, so when did you first special- hear the term special forces? When did it, it was because you always had Ranger in mind. So did, did you know about special forces? Well, I, I did. So I had Ranger in mind. And then um, and then my reenlistment NCO was the second guy after the recruiter that got me um, whenever it came because I only came in on a two year contract. But within those two years, you know, I was an E5 and I was Ranger qualified, jump master, pathfinder, all that stuff. And um and so it came time to re-up, and um, and I asked him, I was like, hey, man, you know, I'm Ranger qualified. Uh, can I, you know, go? I want, I want to go to Ranger Battalion, you know? And uh, <laughs> and I was stupid for not pressing and asking questions, you know, but he's like, no, man, uh, no, you have to be an 11 Bravo, because I was still 11 Hotel at the time. Really, the reg reads, you know, if no matter whatever you are, if you're in 11 series and you are have a victor identifier, you know, you, you can be whatever 11 series that you want to be. But he got me good. And um, and so I re-upped again uh, just to extend. Uh, I did another like three year uh, for where I was. You know, I got some college. Uh, uh, I think I got a semester of college out of it or something like that. And um, but anyway, that's how I, that was my, I didn't get it then. And so, and then somewhere in there, I, oh, in 19, um, in 95, I got to do uh, the best ranger competition uh, from, from the 82nd. I was one of the teams from the 82nd that went down there. So, which was a big deal, you know, at the time. And I'll, I'll, I'll gladly tell you that, uh, that I was a survivor, not a competitor. Uh, at the best ranger competition. <laughs> I, uh, it's an interesting I, way to I phrase placed, it, but I get what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. I placed a proud, me and my partner placed a proud 13th place. Um, but I got to experience that, which is just incredible. And uh, and I got to jump master uh, into the 45th anniversary, into the D-Day invasion, into St. Mary Glees, France. So, oh, I mean, wow. I just had all these amazing experiences in the 82nd then i wanted to try to go to the next level which was sf uh, so in uh december of 1995 i went to uh sf selection uh passed that and then uh got chosen to be an 18 charlie so explosive guy so i started the q course uh that next january of 96 what so was selection to- like back then i'm just curious by the way what was selection like because it's different now right it's three weeks and it's a whole different set of circumstances I think so, man. It was just, uh, you know, it was heavy on the, it was heavy on the land nav, you know, all the individual stuff. And you still had that crazy ass team week, you know, that was just crushing. Um, so that was, I'm not really sure exactly what all they got going on there now, but then in 96, that's what, or 95, 
you know, it was still that, I think it was a little bit less than four weeks, uh, but it was, I don't even remember it that well. I just remember it really sucked a lot. <laughs> and, um, and I was really glad it was over and I was really glad that I made it. And then, uh, so I went to the Q course 18 Charlie, which I loved explosives. So, I mean, I got really good. And then, um, and then I got, uh, chosen for seventh group, uh, which is also one of, one of the ones that I wanted. Uh, so again, it's mid nineties, you know, 96, you know, is whenever I got to my team. Uh, and, uh, and again, immediately when I showed up to my team, I had three guys on my ODA that were, uh, El Salvador vets. Oh, wow. So they had been in that whole Iran Contra and all that stuff. Three dudes on one team that I showed up to as a, you know, a six years in the army E6. Uh, that's who that's again, you know what I mean? My teachers were com, you know what I mean? Were combat veterans. And, um, yeah, man. So again, now I was in, back at the bottom of the totem pole, you know, and just learning my way up. And, uh, and again, man, I was just super fortunate. The team sergeants that I had, uh, the team leaders that I had and, uh, and all the guys on the team, I did several deployments uh, to Central and South America, all pre-9-11. Um, and, and again, man, I just freaking loved it. Uh, I loved the whole SF mission, the by, with, and through, which we call it nowadays. Back then, we called it unconventional warfare yep. and all that. Mm -hmm. And uh, But I loved it, man. And then again, uh, so then what came up for me next was, was uh, unit selection. You know, So I was like, man, I'll never make it out there. But I didn't want to. I didn't want to have the regret of not trying. Um, and you know, what I mean, I had five years on the team. So again, I'm getting ready to get pegged for to go to SWIC and be an instructor or a uh, recruiter or something. You know, something that I don't want to do and uh, what I probably should have done, but whatever. And um, so I was like, well, let me go give selection a, a try. And, and this um, is selection for Delta. You're talking about? Yep. Uh, yep. And by the way, for the civilians listening, SWIC, SWC, uh, Special Warfare Center and Schools. So it's uh, just a, for the civilians listening, get you what he's talking about. It's a, it's where you go to teach other Green Berets or for, help form other Green Berets. So just wanted to give you yeah, context. Would, yeah, thanks, man. And um, so uh, so I went to selection and uh, and never in, in my wildest dreams that I think I would make it. Uh, now, I mean, I was going for it. I didn't have like a self-defeating attitude or anything, but I was, uh, I just always, my plan, because at that time I had 11 years in the army. So, you know, I was a senior E7, uh, I was getting ready to potentially take over, uh, an ODA. And, um, so, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, so I would have been fine if I didn't make it, you know, cause I loved the, the being a green beret. I love that mission. I would eventually, you know, soon be a team sergeant. I was like, hey, man, let me just go knock this out. And, you know, it just, you know, so that way I don't have a regret. And right. then next thing you know, I made it. And um, so then, you know, so I made selection. And then uh, I was in the training course after that. And then in my training course, so again, back to me showing up to a place uh, that, that now I'm directly underneath, you know, combat veterans you know, four of my cadre in the training course uh, were Gothic Serpent guys. I mean, they were Black Hawk Down. You know what I mean? They were in the Battle yeah. of Mogadishu. Yeah. Four of them. Whew. 
four of them are my, you know what I mean, and part of my instructor cadre. So yet again, and that's not to mention, you know, the ones that have done even more of that. So, uh, so uh, you know, that did finish my training, um, went over to my unit, and uh, and that was 2002. Uh, whenever I showed up to my uh-huh. team. And then that was my first uh, combat deployment uh, was to Afghanistan in the fall of 2002. It's interesting because I always say that the Army has a funny pl- funny way of putting you where you're supposed to be throughout your career. In yeah, your man. case, you have got the charmed military career where you were always with the right people at the right time. Do you ever yeah. kind of look back at that and, and wonder how much different your career would be if you hadn't had those people there? Man, I know it. I mean, I, I mean, that's like uh, a lot of people will say to me, you know what I mean? Like, oh, Tom, you're humble. Uh, you know what I mean? You're, you know, soft-spoken, all that. I was like, man, how can I not be I was just going to say, right? You're... <laughs> I was like, man, I, I mean, it's not cliche. I mean, you hear it a lot, but it's like I'm where I'm at or I was where I was at in my military career because I literally rode on the shoulders of giants. You know what I mean? That yeah. is not a cliche. That is not an exaggeration. It was like, I mean, yeah, I busted my ass and yeah, I did my part and I, you know, had an incredible work ethic and I was getting effort and all of that stuff. I mean, I'm proud of all that that I did and uh, on, you know, my willingness and everything. The man, to your point, is like, uh, you know, I've, I've had friends of mine and buddies of mine, you know, that didn't have, you know, that had horrible leadership and horrible experiences. Some of them even got out of the military because of those experiences of the individuals that were around them. So to your point, absolutely, man, I know how charmed I was, uh, with the, with the men I had around me. Go back, uh, 9-11, where were you? I know you were, were you trying out for Delta at the time? (laughs) No, man, it was, it was September. Uh, so I went to selection in September of, uh, of, of, of 2001, of 9-11. Uh, but at, it happened to be right before 9-11, but during 9-11, I was actually in isolation with my my ODA. It was a training mission, you know, but we were going the full mission profile and we were, had three days of isolation prior to going on a training mission. And uh, and we were in isolation on Fort Bragg uh, whenever 9-11 occurred. Oh, so you didn't know about it the day that it happened? Well, I did. I, uh, they, they, you know, realized whenever they finally realized that uh, – the hey that it was a terrorist attack. It was like right, uh, right before the second tower fell. Um, they, you know, I mean, they or the, right before the first tower fell. They were like, "All right, guys, hey, this training mission's over. Like something's getting ready to happen." I remember sitting in the chow hall, um, you know, watching watching TV. You know what I mean of nine eleven happening. You know, and then when everything went down, and then uh, you know, then next thing you know, Fort Bag is. But because it was an open post at that time, yeah. you know, everywhere it was, yeah. but especially Fort Bragg. And um, so, you know, uh, it was, yeah, that was, that was 9-11. I want to say it was within two weeks is whenever I was in selection. I mean, when 9-11 happens, you have to be thinking, all right, we're going to war. And, and oh, yeah. not like Desert Storm war, like this is a different level of war. Like you're, you're finally going to get a taste of, you know, and again, as you mentioned, you had done deployments to to – South America and Central America, but did you know that this was going to be completely different? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, I just kind of, you know what I mean, the writing rose on the, I mean, you know, it was, you know, and within, uh, 
you know, and I had buddies of mine, you know, that went to Q course and all that with, they were in third group and everything. I mean, there was guys, you know, palletizing, you know, and getting ready to deploy, you know, within 10 days after, you know, 9-11 happened. And so, I mean, I was dropping buddies off, getting gear, you know, all of that. And, and one part of me, you know, was like, man, maybe I should just stay, you know, me with my ODA. The only reason why I did it was, was, is because I was in seventh group and I knew they were going to be the last on the list you know, to go to war. It's like, so my, my best opportunities of getting to war, uh, is good. What's going to be to, to go to selection, right. you know, and, and I just didn't want to derail that piece of it. Um, I just kind of wanted to continue with the course. And if I didn't make it, I wouldn't have lost anything. I'd still been with my ODA. Right. And, um, so yeah, man, that, that was all going on that same month. You know, when we were at selection, occasionally you get to see a television and, you know, and, and by then, they were already, you know, dropping some bombs and, uh, and guys were launching. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so you get to Afghanistan when in 2002? It was in the fall. I want to say it was, uh, it was either September, or October, I think October. Okay. What is your mission was, when you get there? What are you told? Um, well, what we were doing it during that time, we were, uh, reacting to time sensitive targets. Okay. And, uh, so, and Bin Laden is still an active target in the fall of 2002. Absolutely. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that's what everybody was still, you know, hunting down the trail. And, um, you know, and the guy that, uh, uh, you know, a lot of, anyway, my one of the guys that I worked for was a guy that, that uh, you know what I mean, that wrote Kill Bin Laden. Uh, oh, Dalton Fury. Dalton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was a good friend of mine. He, is, uh, he has since passed on uh, of cancer. He sure has. Um, but yeah. that, that book, if you guys haven't read it, um, Kill Bin Laden by Dalton Fury. And Dalton Fury is a pen name um, for obvious reasons. But uh, it is an right. excellent read on what went on uh, in the mountains of Torbora in December of 01 and literally how close we were to getting him. As a matter of fact, we had him, right? And yeah. you can verify yeah. that. We had him. Uh, but there were, you know, Dalton cites three things that prevented us from getting him. One, the use of Afghan proxies uh, to put a face on this thing, because it was the American government's genius idea that, uh, you know, we, we wanted the Afghans to look like they captured him, right? Because us getting, getting him himself was, was not the right thing to do, asinine thought. But anyway, so we had to use these Afghan proxies. And lo and behold, you know, you have two warlords fighting over who's going to be the, the, the Afghan clan that gets to claim this whole thing. The second reason was lack of uh, sufficient ground forces um, to backfill, uh, and particularly talking about rangers and special ops guys on the ground to supplement um, what you guys had there. And then third, they talk about the the uh, inability to secure the Pakistan border. Um, and, and that's really what we believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that's how we snuck out through, through the mountains of Afghanistan out into Pakistan and was able to escape Tora Bora alive. As far as we know, you know what I mean? There's really, I mean, that's just everybody's, I think, best guess uh, because, you know, we effectively evaded, you know. But during that time, you know what I mean? That was, again, you know, it was just right there in the fall of 2002. And I stayed there from October to, uh, I think it was into January, you know, and then that's whenever, you know, that's going into 03, and that's whenever. Uh, you know, they're starting to position and everything for Iraq. Let me ask you, uh, when when you're somebody on the ground chasing after this guy that the whole world is trying to hunt down, um, mm-hmm. 
what do you what do you feel like your percentages of getting him are? Like, I, I don't I can't comprehend that. Like I don't have the intel and the information to know. Did you feel like you were close? I was too new <laughs> to really understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean. I was, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I was too new to really. I mean, I understand the intel packets and you know and all of that kind of stuff and probability and all of that. You know, and it, and you were always hoping, you know what I mean, and being optimistic about it. But at the end of the day, you know what I mean. It was it was a it, that, but that was my whole military career, whether it was or combat career, you know, whether it was looking for uh, Bin Laden or whether it was trying to find Saddam Hussein or whether that was getting Zarqawi or whether it was going after AAM. You know what I mean? There's an endless string of people for us to go after, you know. Right, <laughs> so, yeah. But at that time, it was, you know, I mean, I was just, again, I was a new guy on a team. So, man, I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to keep up and uh, and not screw this good deal I got going on, you know, by being a knucklehead. You right. know, and just, <laughs> just focusing on my job and, and doing what my team leader wants me to do, you know, well, on my 2IC. Put it in retrospect, though. Knowing the information yeah. you know now and how seasoned you became, when you think back on chasing bin Laden in Afghanistan— did you feel like, you know, you were you were as close as you were, or you still can't really put a, a, a grasp on it? Well, I wasn't with him on that on that first rotation, right? You know what I mean on that piece. But whenever whenever I rolled into it into the fall, you know, it seemed like we were far away. You know, the the folks that we were going after were, you know, they were a couple removed. Right. It wasn't okay. like you know what I mean. Like, hey, this guy knows where he's at kind of deal you know i mean it was uh we were we were we at that point in time we were a little bit uh behind the power curve but you know back then in 2002 we didn't have the signal intelligence that we had in 2005 mm-hmm. you know so when it came to targeting and human you know i mean that was all so new you know and everybody as much as some experts like to think that they were experts you know we didn't really understand the whole clans and the tribes mm-hmm. and you know, and what all that really, really meant, you know, on the ground. Intellectually, we had studied it and we knew about it, but it's like, okay, but this is how this works. Like, no kidding. There's, on a, the there's a huge gap there. Yeah. It's like the huge ridiculous gap. classes they give you, or at least the regular army guys get before you go into Iraq, like, you know, on the culture and everything else. And then you yeah. work side by side with these guys. You're like, what the hell were they thinking? Like, they literally have no <laughs> idea how large the gap between what they're telling us is and reality. Uh, one other thing yeah. I think that they severely underestimated, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. You know, uh-huh. you mentioned ha- how you struggled that mountain phase during ranger school. Well, this is a whole different level of mountain phase in Afghanistan. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, what was that like for you and how much of a challenge was um, the, the terrain? Because we, we mention it all the time to people in Afghanistan. It just... I don't think pictures ever do it justice. No, uh, man, when you're standing at the bottom of a, of a mountain in Afghanistan, having to climb up that thing or go down it, and what it's like. Oh man, it is. Uh, yeah, it it is horrendous. <laughs> but the thing is, is that the the benefit that I had at that time is that I was in insane shape. Uh, I mean, nothing prepares you like you said for those just smoke fests going up those mountains. I mean, it's just. You can't put words to it, you know. <laughs> I mean, I can't anyway. But the only good thing that I had going for me was is that, you know, I mean, at that point in time, I was at some of the peak shape, you know, of my life. Um, so that that helped me out. So. All right. So after that deployment ends, you end up going to 
Iraq. Uh, part of the mm -hmm. invasion? No, okay. we came in a uh, we came in a two two or three months after our rotation uh, came in. Some in the summertime, June or July is whenever I, my first trip to Iraq. Now, this first trip is the first trip the 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 first mission basically go find Saddam Hussein. I mean that was our that was our target set. You know, was the was the top guys. You know, on targets, and so. Um, so I mean, they were hunting the deck, right? The deck of cards. Right, deck of cards about, sure. You know yeah. what I mean? So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and the the amazing difference, you know, between two thousand three, you know, the difference to, between two thousand three and two thousand four, is is like the difference between you know an apple and a Volkswagen, you know, because during the two thousand three, I mean, the guys on the invasions got into a, you know a, some pretty good pretty good fights, you know, and a, a lot of fights. And then uh, on our, our rotation, we got into some, but it, that's when it started kind of getting. Uh, but there was no foreign fighter thing going on. It was just the old regime, and you know, and all that was dispersing. And and we had a, a lot of freedom of movement. You know, there was no IEDs. I mean, uh, some of the yeah, Yin guys would would have some mines and stuff, but it was nothing like what would happen. You know, in the spring of '04. Um, so you know, what I mean that. You know, what I mean that rotation was uh, was was it was good, but then whenever it came to you know my uh, I think it was the next one or the one after that was uh, you know in the spring of '04 when they hung up the Blackwater guys, uh, you know that kicked the whole thing off was Zarqawi, you know, and the first battle of Fallujah and all of that. Uh, you know, I was uh, we we I was in Ramadi during that time, and then we ended up going into the first battle of Fallujah. And, you know, but that that's when everything changed. Uh, you know, we had these these foreign fighters that were much like the foreign fighters in Afghanistan. They were they they were combat experienced uh, and they were hardened, trained uh, fighters. So so it was I mean, so it was some fighting going on, you know, and. Um, you know, and that's when everything, you know, that's when the casualty count really started going mm -hmm. up, you know, but then bloody oh five oh six yeah you know was whenever just everything kicked off you know and that's when the surge happened i heard and, surge know, happens in oh seven because the height of the violence was was oh five and I, that's when i was there and it was bad i mean it was yeah man. every day there was a there was a report coming out uh the ied surge really started in late 2004 into 2005 and uh it, it changed it changed the whole basically uh, you know battle space uh it changed the picture of the war absolutely man and then in um and then in 2006, uh, 2006, I was, uh, so, I mean, with my charmed military career, I also got some, sh you know, you can't have the good without the bad, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, so and I, I say it's bad, but I was super fortunate and grateful to be a part of it because of my medical training uh, that I got, you know what I mean? During all of our training out at the unit, you know, lots and lots of medical, cause a lot of it was self-aid buddy aid medic, you know? And, uh, and so I had, we had extensive, uh, medical training, but I, w I was a part of three mass casualty events, uh, you know, during, during my deployments. And, the and the last one, uh, was in September of 2006. Uh, it was in Yusufia, Iraq, the Triangle of Death, they called it at the time. They had shot a bunch of helicopters down. And, yep, yep. And it, was, and it wasn't long after they rolled up the uh, and massacred, uh, you know, and tortured the 101st guys, you know, that got rolled up down there in Mahmoudia and Yusufia. 
at the old Russian power plant. Yes. And um, so uh, we were down there and we were augmenting, helping out the 82nd, which was good. And um, and so what ended up happening, short version is, is that uh, it was a battalion mission uh, going on. So, you know, companies out, you know, mortars were set up, everything was good, sniper positions, you know, the whole full war meal deal. And uh, we had a 82-millimeter uh, mortar round landed about 20 meters from where I was standing. Uh, so we had about two guys, you know, killed instantly and then had about 13 of them, uh, you know, that were severely, severely wounded. And unbeknownst to me at that time is whenever I got uh, my traumatic brain injury. Um, I was knocked out, broke my wrist, my thumb. But when I came to, you know, I mean, it was all about, uh, it was all about, you know, obviously helping the wounded. And at that time, you know, I mean, there wasn't a lot of medics around there. They were having to come over from the battalion where the battalion was set up. And uh, so just me and uh, and my sniper partner, you know, and and the guys on the ground there, you know, just went and addressing this event. And um, and so two things happened for me that were significant and and uh, and changing. Uh, in how I went forward from 2006 to 2009. And uh, two things happened. One thing happened was mechanically, I, I use different words, but mechanically something broke in my head, meaning I got a, you know, I had a traumatic brain injury and I didn't know about it. And then the second thing what that happened was that, that I kind of got broke emotionally, uh, not kind of, I got broke emotionally um, because in my mind, even though this is an unrealistic expectation, you know, in my mind, you know, working where I work, a lot of folks looked at us like, oh, that's big brother, man. If those guys are around, you know, we're good. And a lot of times when I'd be around, you know, they'd just get blasted. And um, and so with this one, it was like, you know, I mean, at this time, you know, I'm 36 years old, you know, 18 years old. I mean, I'm not quite old enough to be some of these 17, 18 year old dads, but pretty close, close right. enough. You know, man, and it broke, you know, it broke my heart uh, into a million pieces. And because uh, in my mind, it's like, OK, my job is to protect these guys, you know, and uh, and then this was my third mass casualty. And it's like, OK, man, what does a protector what does a protector do when he fails to protect that which matters most? Uh, you know, and it, and it broke me. So I was left with two choices. I could quit, you know. <laughs> I just quit, I guess, and go on, uh, you know what I mean? Or I refocus and I refocused on, it's like, okay, well, if I can't protect them like this, then, you know, as many as the bad guys as we can get, uh, you know, if there's no bad guys, then they can't hurt my guys. So that was my next mission. And it's something, what, what significantly happened to me at that time, uh, on the inside was, is, uh, uh, it, it became very personal mm -hmm. uh, instead of being, I mean, I was always professional. There's nothing that I did that I regret or any of that kind of crap. Uh, but it became very personal for me at the time, which was very detrimental um, uh, to me, uh, not to the mission, not to anyone around me, but like uh, to, to just my person kind of, you know what I mean? Cause I was consumed with one thing and one thing only. And that was, getting the bad guys. And, um, and so I did, you know, I think four more deployments after that right. up until 2009. 
So with the, again, the untreated TBI, you know, I was getting more concussions and more, and I was having a lot more problems. And then uh, I'd had several injuries, uh, back, broken back, back surgery, you know, I mean, just the normal 40 months of combat, you know, um, that'll, that'll <laughs> break stuff in you. But at the end of my career, I had 19 years in the army. And, um, and so I had to make a decision. It's like, okay, uh, as a team leader, you know, lo- of course, loved. I mean, I was living the dream for, you know, almost 10 years there. And uh, it's like, uh, but I was having some severe back issues. Like I couldn't wear kit without taking narcotics. And I wasn't going to wow. obviously, not, and I wasn't going to obviously take narcotics, you know, and wear kit. So it hit the pain and, and everything had gotten that bad. And, and, uh, and so at 19 years, I had to make a decision of, okay, take uh, the bonus money and kind of stay in, but not be in kit. I was going to have to take a, you know, a different kind of job, um, you know, or get out. And, um, so, and so some other things were going on during that time. Um, so one thing that, uh, that is super important to mention is, uh, in 1992, uh, I, I got sober. Uh, I was, I struggled with alcoholism at a very young age. Uh, and that partly when I was alluding to me not doing good in college and all that, you know, was a huge part of that. And then uh, I was getting in a lot of trouble and, um, you know, and then me and my wife ended up getting separated and which she was the, really the only thing that I cared about more than the military. And uh, so, I, so I got sober in 1992 uh, and, uh, and that's a huge part of my story, especially how it, it goes today. So, I, I got sober and, you know, I mean, alcohol is a big part of our culture and everything. So I'm not like the alcohol police or anything. Right. Um, uh, and I'm not against alcohol. What I'm against is uh, substances, you know what I mean? Hijacking our guys' lives, you know, and destroying families and causing suicide rates. Like I got a problem with that and you should too, you know? So, but in 92, um, I got sober and that set the tone for me and how I'd live my life, uh, you know, in the military, you know, so the 18 years of my military career, I was sober. When I say sober, it means like, Hey, I'm going to meetings. I'm part of a 12 step group, uh, you know, helping other guys out, uh, you know, the full gamut, full tilt. I loved it. Uh, still love it. And, um, and so that was all in, in, in my career. The reason why that's important at the end, um, was cause I was really bad off, but when I made the decision to get like, okay, I'm going to get out of the army. I had untreated TBI. The only thing that saved me was a buddy of mine named Ryan. Um, he was, we were in special forces together and he went to some other special mission units and, uh, and he had gotten uh, shot in the head in 2005. Damn. And when I say shot in the head, I mean, um, it hit his head. It didn't penetrate the brain barrier, but it, you know, it was a head shot. And, um, so again, that was 2005 where they didn't really, we weren't really switched on to TBI and all that stuff. So he got really quality of care. And so this was now 2010, almost five years later. And he would tell me, you know, he was my best friend. So I would be completely honest with him when I, what I was thinking about, what was going on with me. And, and he was telling me, he was on me, man, you know, like only another warrior can be, you know, it's like, Hey man, you are, you are freaking screwed up and you have got stuff going on in your head. And I was like, well, man, everybody I know has been blown up. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'm not anything special. And, uh, but it finally, you know, uh, it was like, okay, 
you know, uh, I'm going to go get some help. And so the what triggered me to get some help, right? So I had number one, I had it wasn't because Tom's great idea, number one, because that 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 would never happen. Because um, one thing I want to talk a little bit about is you know how we we because I used to say it all the time is uh, we always say like, uh, hey man, if you need anything, just let me know, and uh, and I'll help you out. Well, let's look at that statement for a second and just look at me. Uh, with all the things that I had been through and all the selections that I had been through, you know, when you go through a selection, it produces a certain profile and a certain end results, right? Well, two main factors that are in that end results is number one, I'll never quit. Uh, and then number two, I'm never going to ask for help. That's mm-hmm. why you selected me. Right. And now you And now you tell me if I have problems to let you know. Like that doesn't even follow a train of logic. Um, but, I, and again, I, I learned that narrative as I was going through my own stuff, because what triggered me to actually do what my buddy said to do was, uh, was this was my thought process. So I, 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 I wouldn't know where I was at times. I lost the ability to visualize things. Uh, I was having huge mood swings, uh, a lot, a lot of emotions going on. And then, um, and, but I had a lot of tools in my tool belt, right? And so what I needed to do was the noise in my head. Uh, you know, I needed that to be quiet. So I have tools in the toolbox. So for me, it was prayer. Tried prayer, didn't work. Tried, uh, hey, work with another alcoholic. I did that, didn't work. Hey, you know, do this step work. I did that, didn't work. I went through my whole toolbox and been like, okay, this isn't stopping what's going on in my, like, I need this noise to stop in my head. And then I thought, well, I know what bullets do to brains. And uh, so I know that'll turn it off. So I start going through uh, MDMP, military decision-making process on why this is a valid course of action of me putting a bullet in my brain. But let me pause there for a second. Again, I had untreated TBI, mm-hmm. which affected the executive functioning of my brain, meaning my decision making. And um, so I'm running this course of action of of why using this pistol is a valid course of action. You know, in a military decision making process, I was working through that process towards execution, and then I paused. And uh, you can call it the grace of God. You can call it a moment of clarity, whatever you want to call it. But I realized what I was thinking, you know, that I was thinking that this was a valid course of action. And as soon as I realized that, of course, I said to myself, I'm in a lot of trouble, you know, and that was the trigger for me to say to my buddy, Ryan, like, okay, man, what were those tests again? So I went and got tested, uh, you know, eight hours of testing for TBI. It's, you know, the definitive, uh, non-subjective, you know, the, if, if you're trying to cheat on it and all that, you know, it, it comes out. So basically I had 50%, I was operating on 50% processing speed and 50% of verbal memory. So I had significant, uh, mild traumatic brain injury. Wow. I didn't think there was anything mild about it, but you know, <laughs> So anyway, to fast forward a little bit, you know, I went to the, uh, so, so, you know, I was like, Hey, cause I was starting to let my family down a little bit. And, uh, and that bothered me greatly. Uh, cause I'm, I'm very, um, proud husband, I'm proud father. 
uh, you know, at the time I had two boys that were eight and 11, you know, my wife and I had been together uh, since 1990, you know, and, um, you're one of the few you know, special operators, by the way, who's had a marriage last that long. You know that, right? And you know that mainly has to do with my wife. <laughs> Damn saint, isn't she? <laughs> she is. So that's what I always say is like, who's the dumb one? You know, and uh, but but you know, but I, you know, I mean, I wasn't doing anything crazy. I wasn't like breaking things at the house. I was doing it's just I was vacant. It's like I was physically here, but I was not here. You know, and I had all kinds of untreated. Uh, unprocessed emotion, you know, PTS, they call it, you know, I mean, I like the original version back in the civil war, they called it soldier's heart, you know, and it's just what happens when warriors experience combat, you know what I mean? For an extended period of time. But, uh, so I went to cognitive therapy. I went to physical therapy. I went to psychological therapy. I went to vestibular therapy <laughs> and I even got on, um, meds uh, for about eight months. I was on, like I was on Zoloft for me at that time, just a light dose. But I, you know, I had a little bit of a chemical imbalance going on at that time. But if you saw me on the street, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know it. You know I mean? I was a functioning guy. I mean, I was okay, but I wasn't okay. And, um, the thing about me going to all those different therapies was, is that they all work. But the key thing, uh, the reason why all those things worked is that I wasn't self-medicating. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't, when I say self-medicating, I wasn't abusing prescription stuff. I wasn't taking anything I wasn't supposed to be doing. And for me, I wasn't drinking anything. You know what I mean? I was living a, a good lifestyle. You know what I mean? I purely, I had untreated uh, traumatic brain injury and I had unprocessed trauma. And so what I needed was treatment for my traumatic brain injury, you know what I mean? And processing for my untreated uh, trauma. And uh, so I did that. And lo and behold, I got better. I mean, it wasn't no over the night kind of thing. I mean, it was it was a struggle. But I mean, I I was, you know, I mean, I, I started tackling that stuff the same way I did my military career. It's like, hey, what school can I go to? I'll try, you know what I mean, hyperbaric chamber, I'll try EMDR, I'll try go, you know what I mean? It was like, hey, I just took the same mindset that served me so well in my military career and applied it to my healing uh, and to being a good dad and a good husband and earning a living and making a difference and tending to the health and welfare of the troops. You know what I mean? So I had my mission, which was to take care of my family, which was included me having a job, you know, and, uh, and then health and welfare of the troops for me, now that I was a veteran and out of the military, you know, it, that was, it was, you know, in 2010 and 2011, you didn't hear about 22 veteran suicides a day. No one, that, that wasn't anything that was on the news. That wasn't anything that anybody talked about. It was in random articles and stuff like that. And I was, I was floored whenever I first, I was like, this can't be right. You know, more, so more, I'm a fact finder, right? So, <laughs> so an Intel guy, you know what I mean? Hey, what's the facts? What's the facts? You know, and then lo and behold, it's like, holy shit, this is, this is real. This is true. And oh, by the way, it's been going on for a few years now already. So I got really involved in, obviously with my own experience uh, of, of near, you know, contemplating taking my own life because it seemed like a good idea. And again, it's super important for me to say that because it, it wasn't that I was 
that I was going around thinking like people would be better off without me or, you know, I don't like, I thought it was a good idea uh, because my brain was not working right, you know? And then, um, so then I see all these guys that are, that are suffering and a lot of them friends that I know, you know, and the only difference between me and them was, is I did, I didn't have a self-medication issue. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I had a good lifestyle and I was doing all that. So I got really involved in, uh, you know, in the veteran suicide piece and, uh, me and a buddy of mine who was in third group named Magnus Johnson, we came up uh, with elder heart, which was uh, combined heart pieces, you know, to honor, right. uh, those that had lost what we call the war at home, um, you know, to taking their own lives and, you know, and then, so, and then we, uh, switch that into mission 22, you know, and, and, and uh, so we were just doing a lot of really good work and, you know, paying the bills and just trying to go along. But my real passion has always been about sobriety, about chemical dependencies and, uh, and helping guys get free of all of that. And, uh, and so in 2013, I met, uh, a man named Josh Lannon. Um, I was putting on a, what I call a fun and gun event, you know what I mean? Where we bring in CEOs and stuff and we put them through some hardcore training and we give them some shooting and it's really good stuff, you know, and they love it. And I met Josh and Josh at the time had been running uh, a, a, a chemical dependency places, rehabs, high quality, high level of care uh, for over 15 years, you know, at that time uh, successfully. So short version is, is he's like, Hey man, my next, next thing we want to do is a veteran healing center. And I'm like, well, I'm kind of into that, you know? And, uh, so, so me and his wife, Lisa, uh, who's the business partner combo also, uh, you know what I mean? We started coming up with, uh, what we call warrior's heart. Um, you know, so we started getting that together in 2013 and then, uh, it started coming to fruition in 2015. And we got our, our property in 2015 in Bandera, Texas. And in uh, April of 2016, uh, we're a licensed facility. And so from 2000, April 2016 to now, we've had uh, right at 1,300 warriors uh, come through a warrior's heart for chemical dependencies, post-traumatic stress, mild traumatic brain injury, moral grief and injury, and all the other co-occurring conditions that happen. Because the big thing for me and uh, was the majority of the suicides, uh, the veteran suicides that I was exposed to and that I knew about, uh, there was always a chemical involved. Either they were abusing illicit drugs, prescription drugs, or they were drunk as crazy. And right, um, yeah. so it's because with our type of folk, um, you know, when, when, some, when someone takes their own life, uh, you know, what usually is said is, is, oh my gosh, I didn't think he was that bad off or man, I knew it was bad, but I didn't think, you know, there was no signs or symptoms. It's not a cry for help. When our type decides that they're leaving this earth, they do it. Um, so there's no really preemptive, like you can't stop that. So for me, it was like this and, and, and everyone like me, I'm not definitely not the only one. There's an army of us doing it is, uh, is like, man, how do we get ahead of this? You know, and for me, it was like, okay, well, if the majority of them are struggling with some form of self-medication when they do the act, what if we get ahead of it 
and and hit it with the struggle and with self-medication because maybe if we would remove the self-medication and process some of that trauma they won't get to that spot mm-hmm. because if yeah. they get to the spot they're just going to do it um uh, so so that's why it was uh again just super had always been a big passion of mine and then with me josh and lisa and then all of course all the team at warrior's heart you know um you know that that is what we do. I mean, that is that is our thing, and we're the only one in the nation. So there is no other facility in the United States of America, probably in the world, but for sure in the United States of America, that handles only the warrior population. What I mean when I say warrior population, I mean uh, military members, active duty, and veterans, law enforcement and all first responders. So basically those that face life and death on a daily basis as a profession, you know, is who comes to Warrior's Heart. That's the only ones, and we're the only one in nation that just served that population. Right. Let me ask you, uh, because I mentioned earlier your brother was on the podcast. He dealt yeah. with a lot of his own issues as well that were similar to yours. Sure Where was has. he in all this? I mean, did you guys ever connect on any of this? Were you afraid to talk to each other? No, no, man. We, um, Scott and I were hugely involved before, uh, before I met up with, uh, Magnus and we started Elderheart, Scott and I is who initially kicked this stuff off. When I say this stuff, I'm talking about my little world, not like <laughs> everywhere, but Scott and I did, uh, I think it was 2011. It might've been 12. We did a, the first thing we ever did was an NRA video. It was an NRA life of duty Patriot profile, uh, and it's called Forward March. Uh, and it's Scott and I, you know, and Scott and I were the ones that uh, that we started all of this thing off. Scott got really involved in the uh, so I went the tactical way. Uh, I stayed on the ranges and in the shoot houses because that's where I needed to be, and Scott needed to. Uh, you've 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 talked with him, man. I mean, he, he is gifted. Uh, Andy's works his ass off, you know, and at, at personal development and at coaching others. So Scott really went into that vein and I went into the other, but I mean, we started this whole piece together as far as the war at home, we were on several different podcasts and uh, yeah, man. And, and even though a lot of the times that we are together overtly, we're always together behind the scenes trying to figure stuff out and work on things and, promoting for one another and and no man he was uh scott was was there from the beginning and still now all right lots to unpack um you know and the the challenges of of tbi and ptsd and everything else is something that we've gone over you know nearly in every podcast we do but Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the thing is, it's an individual problem for everybody, right? Like it's almost like a fingerprint. Nobody handles this thing the exact same way. Sure. There are tendencies, um, and there right. are some, some commonalities between it, but ultimately the solution that works for you doesn't always work for everybody else. And Correct. so, you know, in, in your work with all these veterans going forward, is there something you realize or have stumbled on that you see is a commonality that, that isn't readily available, you know, or isn't cognizant to everybody? Yeah, man, but it's the same. Uh, so I agree definitely with what you said. Everybody gets it a little bit different, but certain principles hold true for all, just like in the military. You know, I mean, there's certain things that, hey, this unit does it this way. This one does it a little bit different this way. But fundamentally, there, there's a standard and uh, and principally, you know, and things are principally driven. 
So those principles, while we can say that, hey, everybody does the flavor and heal a little bit differently, that's true. However, fundamentally, there's certain things that all of them that are successful do. Uh, when I say all, I'm just saying 80% rule, you know, because um, we know nothing's 100%. So, you know, and all that stuff uh, that that keeps guys, that gets guys healed, trained up and healed up is the same things that we did in the military. When did you do, ever do anything by yourself in the military? You went to the bathroom by yourself. That was about it. That maybe, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. Maybe yeah. if you were lucky. Right. But it was always the buddy rule. It was always with the team. It was always the squad. It was, I mean, it, it, you know, I mean, you never like when I say never eight again, 80% rule, you know, you're always with it. So, so then guys get out of the military or they get out of law enforcement or they get out of this profession and they try to handle everything on their own. Like that doesn't follow a warrior train of logic because you always have your battle buddy. You know, so they get on these islands and they get by themselves and they don't have a team and they don't have mission and they don't have a purpose. And therefore it don't work because we're not right that way. We're not wired that way. We need a mission. We need a purpose. We need a team. Uh, that's just how we're wired. And we need to be serving others. That's what we've done our whole adult lives. And it's what we continue. It's when we stop that process of being a warrior, you know what I mean? Because I didn't know that was a big lesson learned for me was, uh, you know, I thought my, I thought me being a warrior was defined by my prowessness on the battlefield, you know? And although at that time that, that was accurate, you know what I mean? Hey, I proved I'm not a coward. I uh, proved to have some courage, you know, to me and I can look out for the next man, but I didn't die. You know, so then it was, I got out of the military and it was like, well, what do old broke warriors do? You know, like last thing I want to be is that guy talking about ranger school or, you know what I'm saying? That guy talking about basic training stories. It's like, no, man, I, like I want to be engaged and involved in what's going on in life now. You know, so how do I, how do I do that? You know, where do I fit in? What is my next mission? Who do I want to go down that road with? You know, because alone, I'm not, and, and you nailed it, Mark, you know, some guys don't have problems with PTS, you know, I mean, they naturally process it all. Some guys, some guys don't struggle at all, you know, what I mean, so not everybody needs um, like a lot of help. There's a lot of people that are just hugely successful when they get out of the militaries and that's wonderful. And those guys do not need my help. The guys that need my help are the ones that are like me that struggle greatly uh, with their experiences, uh, whether it was at war, whether it was having TBI, whatever it was, you know. And um, but for me, it was like, hey, it's part of the warrior's path. Old warriors who don't die, you know what I mean, are uh, mm -hmm. then become teachers. You know what I mean? Like that's 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 a continuation of the warrior's path. What's not a continuation of the warrior's path is me to just continuously reminisce about the old days and sit at home and not do anything and right. isolate and not be a part of, of this, this wonderful life in this wonderful country that we all fought so hard for. You know, it's, uh, it's not anybody else's fault but my own, you know. And again, I go back to, you know, I mean, it's not up 
it's not up to guys to reach out to me to tell me that they need help. It's up to me to reach out to them. You know what I mean? Because we all know folks that are struggling. Sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so for me, I had to change the narrative where it was like, because the first thing that comes to mind, man, man, if you need anything, let me know. You know, and that is, uh, that's not right. Uh, you know what I mean? What, what needs to happen? If I know somebody's struggling, then I reach out to them. Right. right. Because they're yeah. not going to ask for help because they're a good teammate. They don't want to drag me down or whatever else is going on in their head. It's up to me to aggravate the hell out of them. You know what I mean? Where are you? What are you doing? It's like, oh, and you know how the conversations usually go is like, uh, hey, man, how's it going? You guys like, oh, man, everything is going good. So, OK, well, tell me what's good going on. What do you miss the most about team life and, and being in the soft community? Man, I don't miss it at all because I got it now. <laughs> but but I but what I do let, let me tell you this, or let me rephrase that. So number one, I don't miss it all because I have a team and I have a mission, and I'm with a lot of the same guys that I've always rolled with, you know. And and I'm meeting new teammates, so that's super awesome and badass. And then, but man, I'm here to tell you, I will always miss. Uh, I will always miss blowing stuff up and trying to get bad guys. You know what I'm saying? Like that mm-hmm. will never. Well, that's a that's ever be, that's a different kind of adrenaline junkie, it. right? Yeah, man. It, well, and for me, it was just I, I just loved it. I mean, because for a while, after, you know, the adrenaline was gone. You know, by 2005, I think my adrenal glands turned off. Uh, so, so I mean, for me, it was. Uh, you know, I mean, I will always love blowing stuff up, being on helicopters. You know, I mean, getting bad guys, man. There will not ever be a time. Uh, until I'm now here, here no more, you know, I mean that I won't want to do that. However, I'm broken, I'm old and I'm not in the military anymore. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so it's like, okay, what's next, you know, and what's next is for, is to do what was so graciously done for me. And it's now for me, it's now time for me to be that old crusty, salty dude and give the new guys, you know what I mean? What was given to me that is the full circle of the warrior continuum. And what happens with some of our greatest warriors, our most experienced ones that don't, that don't get healing that need it. Not talking about the ones that don't do it. You know what I mean? Then, then that next generation is missing out on them because they're not available, you know? And, uh, and that's, that's a tragedy right there. And, um, so no man, I, I'll always miss miss doing the job that I used to do, but uh, but it was over. Um, unless unless you know it something kicks up here on U.S. soil, um, you know I won't be doing that again. Right. Um, and I had to really that was a big part. Uh, you know I had to embrace that that truth. You. Um, I mean, if I want to still do war, like I can get on a plane and. And fly right in, you know, get on a contract and I can go do it. A lot of guys still do that. And yeah. that's wonderful if that's what they want to do. If that brings them happiness and contentment in their life, man, like you said, everybody is different, you know. And uh, But for me, whenever I took the uniform off, that's when that's when it ended for me, you know. And um, and actually, I didn't want it to end. I planned on staying in to, you know, at least 25 and, you know, doing it. But, I mean, I had injuries and all that other stuff going on. Right. And, uh, you know, and then I just had to assume the next mission and the next mission for me was to give back right. uh, and not just to veterans and not just to law enforcement, but to my community, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? To, to be a part of, 
of what's going on, you know, all around me. Of course, you know what I mean? I, I take care of veterans and, and law enforcement. You know, I mean, those are our, our people, you know, but, but the thing is, is I also have to have to have to do my part for the community because it's a big thing that, you know, veterans say that, uh, well, civilians just don't understand, you know, like they don't get it. And it's like, yeah, man, why don't they get it? Well, they don't get it because we don't talk about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? They don't get like whose responsibility is for them to get it. It's ours. You know what I mean? And, and, and obviously, and I'm talking about get it, like truly understand it, but to have those conversations with them. I mean, if some dude asks you like how many people did you kill? You know what I mean? It's like, shut up. You know what I mean? And move on. Obviously mm -hmm. he's an idiot. You know what I mean? But it's like, if someone's asking questions, like have those engaging conversations, how else are they supposed to know what we do? Well, how else I are think, they supposed to know our family? I, I think there's a lot more in common with any traumatic event, like the traumatic events of combat. I mean, you know, PT, one, of the, one of the forms of PTSD is flashbacks. I mean, if somebody who was mugged or, you know, jumped on the street, they will have flashbacks about that event. Uh, mm -hmm. The same way we have flashbacks about events we have went through. There, there's a commonality. There's a ground that you both can discuss there. And like you said, we we don't discuss it because we assume no one can understand what combat is like. Well, you know, I, I, until I get mugged, I don't understand what getting mugged is like. But that doesn't mean <laughs> I can't have somebody explain it to me. And, it, it you know, and I can't relate to it in a certain way. Of course we can. You know, and so, Mark, it's just just like you said, man, there's so much like are there differences? Absolutely. There's yeah. differences, man. But there's so much common ground. Like we can all talk about what it's like to be afraid. We can all talk about what it's like to feel grief and loss. We, you know, we can all talk about anger. We can all talk about uh, being overwhelmed or hopeless, you know what I mean? Or desperate. Like those, there's so much that we can relate with one another if we choose to, you know, and if right. we don't, we don't, you know what I mean? Hey, that's, I mean, it's America, right? You can do whatever, whatever you want to do, man, with whoever you want to do it with. So, but that's where, to me, it's, you know, I mean, as, you know, old warriors that didn't die, it's like, hey, man, you know, we have to change the narrative. You know what I mean? We have 100%. to know that there's that there's strength in healing. You have to know that, like, hey, the the I mean, shit, dude, I would get in a gunfight in a second versus having to go talk to a psychologist <laughs> you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. <laughs> like that you know gunfight you know near-death experience all that it's like yeah yeah i love it you know built for it but like you told me that i need to talk about my emotions or what's bothering me and that kind of stuff like that takes real courage you mm -hmm. know and uh a different kind of courage you know which i which i found myself lacking in but it was just um you know and everything that i tell you about my story is what's incorporated at Warrior's Heart, you know, whenever it came to all the different segments, you know, uh -huh. because, you know, with folks that are struggling with self-medication, I don't care how much PTSD treatment you go to. I don't care how much TBI treatment you go to. I don't care if you go talk to the Dalai Lama, like you got to treat what's killing you first. Right. I mean, it's just like CQV. It's just like, Hey, if we got to take down this whole hotel, you know, 20 floors and we got, you know, 20 rooms on each floor. How the hell do we do that? Well, we do it one room at a time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah. you got to address what's going to kill us first. Because if you're worried about something else further down the line, then it's it's not going to work out, you know? And um, 
and that's what we got right. You know, all of the experiences that I personally have had, everything that there's no theory crap that we do out there. Everything that we do out at Warrior's Heart is uh, battle proven. And when I say battle proven, battle proven in the war here at home, because, you know, you'll have a lot of people say that, hey, man, when you're talking about chemical dependencies, when you're talking about TBI and you're talking about PTS, he's like, hey, man, those are those are super complex issues. And uh, and while they may be super complex issues to some people, that's called Tuesday afternoon at Warrior's Heart. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like uh, like I I get it. It may seem difficult to some, you know, uh, but it's just because, again, back to, you know, we are the population that we serve. Right. I know how much psychology the guys and gals can handle. I know much how much medical I know how much psych I know how much, you know, what I mean, because it's not like we heal and get better and become hippies. You know I mean, we're still warriors. You know, what I mean, it doesn't change who we are, you know, and then it's up to us, you know, what I mean, to go out there and bring the next guy in, you know, and uh, and that's why we have that peer network that we have out there, because that's the true magic. Yeah, we do our one-on-ones. Yeah, we do the processing of trauma. Yes, we train them up on on the chemical dependencies aspect of it. But at the end of the day, the magic is in the team. I I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier how you had learned that, you know, soldiers' health and welfare was training them for combat and making sure they're able to survive. Um, you know, you, you didn't grasp that as a younger soldier. Uh, obviously, you do when you go through combat. And you talk about loss and losing guys that, uh, you know, went on missions with you and everything else. How much yeah. of what you struggled with was due to the loss? And did you feel like those guys had given you the right tools in your toolkit to deal with that? Uh, no, they did not give me the right tools. They gave me the tools that I needed at the time, and that was for combat. Because we all know how hard it is to take a human being, uh, you know, and train them in, in a manner which will enable them to take another human being's life. Like that's a, that's a lot of training that goes into that. That's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Of, I mean, it takes all efforts, you know, in order for that to happen. Because that is the only reason of the U.S. military's existence to kill our enemies, to defeat our enemies. And um, so so what those men that you talked about, they taught me, they taught me everything that I needed while I was in the military at that time. Uh, and, you know, the military has come light years even since I've gotten out where they address the emotional component, you know, where they address the mind, body, spirit. It's like, hey, yeah, we have to we have to prep and be ready to survive and thrive in combat, but also we have to survive and thrive back at home, you know, and that's a different skill set, you know, and I didn't learn all of those things while I was in the military. Like I said, they are doing a much better job at it now, but we still got a long ways, long ways to go. But uh, but I don't fault those men for not teaching me those things because you know what they didn't know them either, um, you know. And at the time, again, it goes back to priorities. You know, what do we, you know, being in combat, being like, hey, what are the priorities? Like, you know, it's combat. You know, we'll worry about the aftermath later. 
you know, well, now is, is later. I mean, yeah, there's still war going on. There's still our troops are still in combat. We still are losing guys. But now we have the ability, you know what I mean, to fill the gap with some which some of our elders didn't have before. You know, now we know better so we can do better, you know. And um, but to me, that's that's where a big part of the community comes into play, you know, and with the veterans and, and with the old dudes, you know, like me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, man, how do we you know, you got to get the word out and let guys know that, hey, man, for you to seek seek training. Cause let's call it what it is. It's training. I'm either trained or untrained. Right. So for me to seek help and seek training, you know, in getting an emotional skill set in my toolkit is the same as me going to a pistol or a carbine class. Cause I suck at shooting. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I suck at shooting cause I've never been trained. Once I got trained, I shot better. Right. So if you ask me, Tom, when's the last time you did your emotional training? I'm like, well, never. And it's like, well, okay, well then doesn't it explain why you suck emotionally? You know, following again, the, the training concepts, you know, crawl, crawl, walk, run. I mean, all the stuff that we learned in the military, all they have to do is apply it to this different skill set, And, uh, and it is that simple. But again, cause uh, you know, a lot of docs and a lot of folks will try to get into a bunch of big words and foo-foo stuff and you know, complexities and philosophies and this and that. And it's like, no, ma'am, tell me three emotional tools that you have. How do you ground yourself whenever you're stressed out? How do you control your breathing whenever you're starting to have a panic attack? You know what I'm saying? Whatever they are, just give, make sure you've got three tools in your toolkit whenever it comes to mental and emotional help. I'm not saying become, you know, like Tony Robbins or something, you know, not that there's anything wrong with Tony Robbins, but you don't have to be him. You know, you can still be a warrior because that isn't that really what a warrior is, you know what I mean? Who is a good husband, who is a good dad, and who is a badass warrior? I mean, to me, you know that that's the full that's the full package. Absolutely. I mean, listen, I don't know how uh, else to say it other than what we said before that it's been a kind of a charmed military life for you. Um, yep. But you know that, that sort of glosses over um, what you had to deal with on the tail end, right? Because none of that was charmed. Right. That that. <laughs> While you got to, you, you led a charmed life, you know, through combat and through your military experience, um, it, it wasn't as such on the back end. Um, and, and that sort of, I, I think, strikes the perfect balance between, you know, the highs and lows of everybody's military career to a certain extent, especially one that is surrounded by combat and is surrounded by multiple deployments and everything else. I mean, it's it's a constant roller coaster ride. And, and you know, the fact that you come out of this thing um, in relatively good mental health and relatively good physical health, I think is a testament to uh, all the, the the people, as you said, that have gotten you to this point in your career. But it was almost yeah. like it was a smooth transition, right? Th- these people carried you through and then left you in a position that you were smart enough to figure out the rest of it on your own. Uh, and thankfully you did, you know, uh, and thankfully you, you're, in, you're in a place now where uh, th- th- there's an answer and a path for you. Yeah, man. And it goes, and it goes back to what we were saying about the principles, you know, cause it, it comes back to, is it working or is it not working in my life? You know, cause if something's working in my life, then absolutely, man, Hey, rock on, enjoy, you know, yeah. but if something's not working, whatever that something is, it's like, okay, well, what would I do when I was in the military, when something didn't work where well, I went and got trained, I went and asked somebody like, Hey man, I'm struggling in this kind of area. 
can you help me out? You appear not to be struggling. Like, can you help me out? Like, oh yeah, sure, bro. Like, hey, check this out. Maybe this will work. Maybe it's not. So that's the thing is, is back to what you said of all what they instilled into me was always to seek excellence. You know what I mean? Always. You know what I mean? Never, you know, it's always about training. You're never good enough. And I mean that in a good way. You know what I mean? Like, hey, I can always be better. You know what I mean? So I can ask myself, man, like what areas in my life am I struggling? And it's like, okay, if I'm struggling in those areas, how can I, how can I get better? Who, who can I, who can I get to assist me? You know, again, back to that simple, practical, logical uh, processes, not any of these big upheavals and, you know, any of that stuff, just like, hey, man, how do I get a little bit better? And then the next day, how do I get a little bit better? You know, and, and just the, again, I mean, everyone knows it's a human thing. You, you got to have, I have to have purpose in life. I have to have a reason why I get up in the morning and start my day, you know, uh, because if I don't have that, which I've, I've suffered for at times, you know, is that, you know, I just, it's just not, it may not be horrible, but it's not everything that I fought for. Uh, you know what I mean? That it's my responsibility uh, to seek out the help that I need. And it's yeah. my responsibility to seek out the ones that do not have the capability of seeking help for their own, for their own self. Well, Tom, it's been uh, an amazing journey. Um, one I've enjoyed hearing everything about, and we, we didn't even scratch the surface of the combat portion of it, honestly, because, <laughs> no. you know, in 12 deployments uh, to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, there, there, there's probably a lot there, but I think the message you're leaving after the fact is probably more important than the one um, that, that is, you know, told by uh, war stories or, or, or tales of, of combat and survival. But that said, man, I mean, Wow, just uh, totally impressed and amazed by what you've been able to accomplish and, and the journey that you're on now um, is one that's going to impact lives and make everybody better going forward. So certainly thank you for that. Absolutely, Mark. And uh, thank you for having me, man. And thank you for listening to me ramble. No, brother, <laughs> listen, man. I mean, it's, a, again, it, it's, it, I, I say it, and you know, I said it last week on the introduction of the podcast, um, that somebody in all the rambling and it's not rambling, but what you have deemed as rambling, somebody's going to be able to relate to that. Somebody's going to hear something that's going to change their life for the better. And that uh, is something I can't underscore enough. As I said, not everybody deals with it the same way, but somebody can find commonality in the way you dealt with it. And I think that in and of itself uh, is, is the message we can leave everybody with. So again, thank you so much for your time, your honesty, your candor, and, and certainly thank you for being part of the hazard ground. And thanks for having me, Mark. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.